Welcome to Our Political Moment, the stories behind the structure. Each episode, we bring you stories from around Philadelphia that demonstrate how structural oppression is ingrained in our lives. I'm one of your hosts, Leah Devon Sarantino, and today we're going to hear a story and an interview about the disparity of support provided to current and previously incarcerated women. Growing up in the 90s, I was raised by two beautiful and complicated moms. Being from a queer family as a kid was already unique, but the different paths my moms took created a clear divide in our family. My one mom was incredibly tough, hardworking, took a union job as a waitress, and made a career out of it, providing stability and structure for my brother and me. My other mom was not as fortunate. She never really coped with the trauma from her past and found solace in drug use. Her addiction eventually led to possession charges, and she was incarcerated for a short time when I was a kid. We never spoke about her time in jail, except for anecdotes that my mom masked with humor. Prior to being locked up, there was glimpses of hopes towards recovery. But after her release, my mom's life never really recovered. That conviction surely made it difficult for her to find legitimate employment, and eventually she fell back into the same patterns. Her time being incarcerated solidified her class placement and helped her sink further into drug use, until she got sick, and then she died. The issues my mom faced were never addressed with compassion, like drug counseling or therapy for trauma she experienced. There was nothing rehabilitative about her conviction. It's almost like the system is designed to keep people like my mom forgotten. There is not a lot of support for women who've been incarcerated. Our storyteller, Medusa Carter, also known as the artivist Black Rat Medusa, shares with our listeners the third act of their play, Mary's Daughter, Memoirs of an Artivist which starts at the point of their experience being incarcerated. I am the muse of the gods, heroine of the Jezebel. Lady heroine came in and cooked the devil. Peace and greetings. My name is Medusa Carter, a.k.a. Black Rap Medusa. I'm a hip-hop artist, teaching artist, and a freedom fighter. I'm originally from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I spent a lot of time in Houston, Texas and I studied at the University of Pittsburgh. It begun at 14. It was a profession I knew well. It was just we back then, making money for survival, buy my little shoes, buy my siblings some food and gifts. Then it became more than I could keep track of. I started selling coke. Although I had a 3.0 GPA in grad school, this addiction was just too real for me. Nobody would hire me, even with my bachelor's degree and pursuing my master's. But we all know the streets is always hiring. I remember when I first caught my case, the fear, the adrenaline, the way the cuffs felt tight around my wrist, wanting to run, riding in the back of the squad car, no real seats, just hard plastic like amusement park rides, how the black cop was meaner than the white one, fingerprints and picture taking. You're not allowed to smile in your picture. Calm and uneasiness, up against the wall, child time, going to court, holding cells, thinking of Asada Shakur and Sundiata, court-appointed lawyers that hate their job, Bob Barker on the tag of my clothes, the game show host. I remember when I first caught my case. The stench of the hallways, women crying and screaming and pleading, naked in front of everyone, squat and cough. No one takes you seriously, thinking about the free world all the time, the metal door slam, tight, keys jingle, black CEOs, one newspaper to share amongst 40 women, county and state, how I kept wanting this to be a dream. Almost every night I dreamt I broke out and broke back in again. Humiliation, the white boy who set me up. I was supposed to make my first salat that morning. The morning of my arrest, I was supposed to make my first Muslim prayer. 
How's it supposed to break? The hobby unit in Marlin, Texas. Maximum security, a six by nine cell. Steel toilets, steel sinks, steel desks. Metal doors that buzz when they open. There were no bars, just doors and mesh. The Texas heat that sweltered through cement and cinder blocked walls. The cool of the floor. John Coltrane cut playing in my head when I was in the hole. Sentimental moods could be heard in my eardrums. My cellmates were often lifers. They always spoke of being remembered. Aurora was one. She killed her stepdad for raping her. Lots of women were in there for defending themselves against a male attacker. I saw how anger could drive people to murder and how love could have saved lives. I saw women hang themselves and be demonized. You get mutilated with a razor if you don't love her no more. Hatred on the tongues of mothers, the bitterness of victims, aggression of the victimizers, the art on the walls, and how you eat what you grow. The word indigent, meaning you don't have anything, I often wondered what my foster mother would say. I thought about how I never wrote my second foster mom. And my third foster mom, I wrote her once, but she never wrote back. This hurt so much that I didn't even try to write again. But my biological mother, she wrote as best as she could, but she never could write well, so her letters were few and far between. I didn't write rhymes much, just couldn't get inspired. Like the block walls were too thick for sound to resound from my soul. Music, there was little or none, except for the voices of women in the night. Some folks had radios, if you could afford one. But if you didn't, we sang songs like Jill Scott's Long Walk or Lauryn Hill's X Factor. Only the voices of us until the guards told us to shut up. Sometimes I thought they liked it though, because we would sing late into the night. I know why Cage Bird sings now, because there was no better music than the live. I got into so many fights, I mean, I went to prison really angry. None of my family or friends even knew I was locked up for the first four months of my sentence. So the prison <laughs> put indigent on everything I had to let people know that I was poor. Being incarcerated and poor is a different type of poor. There's no work that you can do. There's no applications that you can submit. There's nothing you can do if you don't have any loved ones on the outside, which meant that I, no funds whatsoever. My sister, Mecca, and my best friend, Mecca Zayla, found out <laughs> because my ex called my sister. These women saved my sanity, writing and talking and putting money on my books. Becca Zayla even sent me books. My favorite, the autobiography of Asada. They wouldn't let me get Temple of My Familiar by Alice Walker. But the silver lining in all of this was that I learned more about Islam, to embrace it. I learned Arabic, and I wrote it. I prayed almost every day. We fasted for Ramadan with sisters holding each other accountable and holding each other up. Real uktis, real sisterhood, iftar, the meal for breaking fast. We shared, glad to make it through. And the COs, they actually kind of respected us more too, like during Ramadan. So I really survived prison because of Islam. I returned to society in 2011. Thank you so much for sharing that story, Medusa. That was extremely powerful, and I just feel very appreciative to in this space with you, with you sharing that. For folks that are listening, my name is Rick Rajewski. 
I'm the lead organizer for the Mass Liberation Campaign of Reclaim Philadelphia. I'm also a, a born and raised New Yorker, although I've been in Philadelphia for about 10 years now, so I don't know how much claim I have to that anymore. So I'm also an artist, nerd, I identify as a, a multiracial black man. And to speak more about what Mass Liberation is, Mass Liberation is a campaign that is a powerful part of Reclaim Philadelphia because it is creating an agenda for liberation of all people that are affected by oppressive systems in our society, particular focus on ending mass incarceration, and with a theory of change that brings impacted people to the front of that movement. And so stories like Medusa's are, are so important for us to hear to understand the daily violence that our system causes to our people and why it is so important for those experiences and for those stories to be at the front of, of anything that we build to tear down things like our prison system, like our economic injustice system, uh, white supremacy, and all these things that are keeping us oppressed. So now I'm gonna ask you a couple questions about our mass liberation and the work that you, you do. You know, I wanna start by saying, I think what's really important about your story is the fact that it is a story of, of a person, of a, of a woman who has who has suffered under mass incarceration. And that is a story that does not give enough, that is not given enough space in the work that we do. And so I particularly wanted to, to ask you questions about why do you think that is? So the first question I have for you is, why do you think men are centered in the narrative about ending mass incarceration? And how do you think we move the conversation to include uh, women, trans, and, and non-binary folks as well? I think that what's going on in the prisons is a reflection of rape culture in our society. And the reason that women traditionally uh, get left out of that conversation or have had some erasure around mass incarceration is because the larger population has been men. But we also find that the men have returned to society with a certain type of support from society in terms of housing, job skill training, and employment. So these men are empowered to return to society to carry on their lives. Whereas with women, first and foremost, the sentencing, the, the overcharging or the oversentencing, these women are paroled less often. They usually have to max out their sentences because there's no housing for them. Once they do return, there's no housing, there's no employment, and as well as being incarcerated, there's no job skill training. And so when you finally do get that job, you don't want to tell anyone that you've been incarcerated because it's a stigma. When you have to check that box if you've ever been convicted of a felony, although we banned the box in Pennsylvania, it's still on a lot of job and, and college applications. So if you don't check that box, then that's a red flag. If you do check that box, you may not get that call back. It's a stigma, especially for women who tend to be the custodial parent, that they have to get employment. And when you get employment, that you cannot tell anybody that you've had this traumatizing experience. And if you do, what will will happen. It further disenfranchises people from being able to vote, people from being able to lead regular lives. But again, when we talk about the different, the disparities between men and women, again, men are being empowered. I guess because they're the larger population, we have women becoming incarcerated at 700 times the rate of men in Pennsylvania. And with no contingency plan in, in place, with no uh, real support, and with no real outreach to these women absolutely you're right and i think what you're naming there is also the fact that you know like our society is ruled by, by patriarchy and that that even shows up in our prison system and the disparities in like how people are oppressed it, it creates this imbalance that we even see in in some of our movement spaces actually 
and that, and that's actually a transition to the next question I want to ask you, which is um, how do you like you see these gender dynamics also showing up in in our organizing spaces, specifically around mass incarceration? More men uh, speak out about their experience or speak out about organizing. A lot of uh, men inside Pennsylvania prisons who I've been working with almost since I came home, they organize. They're sitting down. They're having conversations. They're holding people accountable. They're creating systems and creating campaigns and organizing around their own issues. Whereas women are more so an advocacy towards their sons or their loved ones who have been incarcerated. So you don't see much advocacy from women on women. You don't hear much about women speaking about women's issues, even though a lot of women are leading this charge around mass incarceration. You don't hear them talk about their own experience as parents of someone who's incarcerated or as a wife of someone who's incarcerated. You don't really hear their story. You more so hear about their male loved one. How it shows up, specifically in my organizing, is having to you know be the one at the table no matter what in each room that I find myself in. I'm having to remember women. I'm having to speak out about these issues, gender-based violence, the stuff that goes on. I'm having to speak out about basic human rights for women because we continue to battle against erasure. It's this thing that I... I think about a lot identities and people who who face oppression and the burden that is born like that they have to bear to be the ones to actually create space for their story that in their narrative um, because it is their experience. Say for myself, like when I first got involved in doing mass liberation organizing, I didn't even think twice about the fact that yeah, black men were centered in the conversation because I move in this world as a man. That's that's a privilege that I have and. I don't have the experience of someone of a woman or a non-binary or a trans person who's been affected by mass incarceration. And so it didn't even dawn on me to think like this space needs to be more inclusive, that this space needs to have people beyond the identities that I see or that I like move in the world with. And it's this tension that I really struggle with. And, I, and I'm not sure, like, I think it's really important for us to work through it about how do we include all of the marginalized people in our work and in the organizing that we do, but without having to put all of that emotional labor on those people to to take that first step. I think one of the things that we have to remember is that I cannot show up for anyone until I'm showing up for myself. Mm. So we cannot put the burden of responsibility on other races, on other genders, until black and brown women are saying to themselves, like, this is what liberation looks like for me. This is what power looks like for me. This is what freedom looks like for me. Until we are actually defining that for ourselves, coming to the table is just coming to the table. I cannot liberate anyone else until I've done a really deep analysis about why it is I found myself in this situation. Not looking at the, you know societal dynamics, not looking at you know my trauma or what have you, but also just looking at my own personhood, realizing my stake and the decisions that I have the opportunity to make. And another reason why there's an imbalance in the organizing is that inside the walls, women have more to lose. Typically, they're the custodial parent. And so if you are organizing or doing anything that the guards can retaliate for, then you may lose certain, you know, privileges such as visitation from your children or reading letters, being able to get your mail, being able to get access to like basic human necessities, they will withhold that from you or use that as a way to punish you 
if you try to speak out about any injustices that are happening uh, behind the walls. And so it's really hard for women's prisons to go on, a, say, a hunger strike because they're retaliated against more. Because, again, you have a lot of male CEOs who will attack them, who physically, mentally, spiritually, and like I said, take these little privileges that you, you know, cling to when you're incarcerated. But I think a, another thing that doesn't get talked about is, you know, we have rape culture outside of the walls, but we have rape culture in the walls. These CEOs, they don't get prosecuted for what they do. They objectify these women's bodies, which is essentially what we're, we're seeing that shows up in society, especially when you're talking about the former slave, the former slave woman never having control over her body anyway and being seen as less than human. So there's no rights in place that protect her. So what we're dealing with, when, when we start talking about organizing, again, we have to go back to rehumanizing women and letting them know that, that you do have worth and that you are important and that if you continue to be silent about your pain, they will say that you enjoyed this. You really touch on a important piece around the overlapping oppressions that black women face in particular because of their of these identities and and because of the history of the objectification of black women in the Jim Crow era in slavery in in even our dominant culture and then how they're portrayed and you know I when I was thinking I was listening to you share that like the thing I was thinking about right is theory of change that actually undergirds a lot of the radical movements that were that happened before us like the Combahee River Collective actually right which is that so black women are free none of us are free Right. Until we liberate the most oppressed of us, we will not be able to achieve mass liberation. We cannot do it until we liberate the most oppressed of us. With that, the last question I want to ask you is actually something I'm really excited about because I've, I've seen you build this campaign from scratch. And I think it ties in directly with everything we've been talking about, which is the, uh, the Dignity Act of Pennsylvania. If you can just tell our listeners what the Dignity Act is and how you see it achieving mass liberation. The Dignity Act for incarcerated women, it started at the federal level, uh, introduced by uh, Cory Booker, a senator out of New Jersey. The main thing that came out of that was just giving women uh, basic human rights. And so, and that was back in 2017. In 2018, Morgan Cephas initiated a package of legislation that was similar to the Cory Booker bill, basically invited more legislators to implement pieces of policy that go into this package of legislation. And so each individual legislator introduced a piece of policy that goes in it. Right now, we have about 10 different policies that are a part of this package. Issues around um, postpartum care, free feminine hygiene products. I do want to emphasize that free right now women have to pay for uh, feminine hygiene products on commissary and if you do not have any funds if you are indigent then the state will give you maybe six to ten pads a month which is not depending on the woman but most likely that's not sufficient there's a benefits package that was introduced by joanna mcclinton that make sure that women who are on their way to returning home can get signed up for these uh, benefits that includes job skill training, uh, job placement, housing, and mental health care. We have another piece called trauma-informed care that's being introduced by State Rep. Summer Lee, just making sure that the trauma-informed care piece is around making sure that all prison officials are trained in how to deal with persons with trauma rather than just, you know, sticking them in solitary confinement or 
ignoring their their mental health. We have to repeat this anti-shackling because although Pennsylvania did ban the shackling of pregnant women, they still continue to do it. We have Elizabeth Fiedler. She introduced a piece around formerly incarcerated mentoring and an ombudsman. We want to make sure that folks who have been through that experience, we want to make sure that they are the ones to talk about their experience and to also be able to go back in and to do like some peer mentorship with folks getting ready to return. And so those are just some of the bills uh, top, uh, just to make sure that we are trying to hit as many angles as possible with this package, making sure that we are addressing basic human rights. Basic. This is basic stuff. We're not asking for no extra amenities, but when you house women, especially at such an alarming rate, we want to make sure that there are policies in place. A couple things that didn't make it to this package, such as reducing mandatory minimums, as well as compassionate release for some of the elders, the elder women who are incarcerated, who, again, we don't get paroled as often as the men do, as there's no plan for home, there's no housing for them. So we have, like I said, 10 different legislators who introduce a piece of policy to this package, and using that package to at least open up dialogue about the conditions that women face while incarcerated. How do you feel like the, the Dignity Act actually addresses the, the initial thing we talked about regarding like the, the dynamics that we see, the gender dynamics we see in organizing spaces? It addresses women specifically. You know, we can't apply the same tactics as we do to the men because they're different entirely. Issues around anti-shackling during pregnancy, issues around alternative housing for parenting. Again, going back to those feminine hygiene products, that's not something that we have to fight for for men. We have a unique situation, and, and this actually has not happened in history. And really, if we go back to mass incarceration, it's only become things since the 90s, really, and really since the, the dismantling of, of the Black Power Movement and the ushering in of the uh, war on drugs that we begin to see these disparities rise. And while the, the incarceration of people altogether is an egregious act, the, the reality of it is is that if the men are facing a disparity, then know that the, men, the women are facing double that disparity. And so we're like the underclass of the underclass. When we want to empower uh, women, we have to look at them as a separate case altogether. So if women are maxing out their sentences, then we want to make sure that they are comfortable until we can figure out how to bring them home. The Dignity Act is just the first step in creating and amplifying the visibility of these issues. But once we do that, we want to decarcerate because there's no reason that you're taking the men and the women out of the community. And once you begin to do that, then you're also taking away the children. You see the, the destruction of the black and brown communities basically because of mass incarceration, specifically around the women. That atrocity begins to reflect on our children. It causes uh, the trauma that they experienced in their parent becoming incarcerated to, you know, kind of be passed on. I want to highlight the fact that a lot of women are there for nonviolent offenses. And for those offenses that are violent, they defended themselves against an attacker. A lot of time, an abusive husband or lover being demonized and criminalized for defending themselves has also played a major role in this, as well as sex workers and immigrants who are parents, who are women, who get picked up for minor offenses, again, nonviolent offenses, or for substance abuse, and rather than being directed to diversionary programs that 
will rehabilitate them, they are being incarcerated again at an alarming rate. We got women who have suffered white supremacy, you got patriarchy, you got capitalism, and God forbid you queer, because then that's an extra stigma and a reason to keep you powerless. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And thank you so much for sharing with us and, and for answering these questions. For listeners that are, that are with us right now, uh, can you tell us how we can get involved? How can we support power that you're building? On March 27th, Morgan Cephas will be introducing the Dignity Act in Harrisburg. So we're looking for folks to sign on to the petition that ends June 19th. And we're asking folks to also put pressure on your legislators to sponsor this bill. And if you want to support our, our broader mass liberation work, come out to our, our judicial candidates forum that's happening on April 8th. Uh, we've been doing a lot of work to, to create a platform and, and an agenda to hold judicial candidates accountable to. And on April 8th at 6 p.m. at the Friends Center, we're actually going to have the chance to force those candidates to publicly give us uh, their stances on different issues. To sign the Dignity Act petition that was mentioned in this episode, head to our website and you will be able to find all the details and share with your community. We want to get as many signatures as possible before the June deadline. Make sure to also join Reclaim Philadelphia as well as many other organizations at the Judicial Accountability Table Forum being held on April 8th at the Friends Center. Judges have a major influence in the fight for mass liberation and at the forum on April 8th is a great time to get informed. Thanks for listening to Our Political Moment. This show is produced by Reclaim Philadelphia. Our team includes Sergio Sea, Kelly Morton, and me, Leah Devin Sorrentino. Thanks to our storyteller, Medusa Carter and Rick Krajewski, both mass liberation organizers for Reclaim Philadelphia. The music for this episode is provided by today's guest. You can find more of Medusa's music on Spotify, iTunes, and on our website. You can also hear this full track, Dying to See Medusa's Whole Play, They'll be performing at Stockton University on April 2nd. There's more details on our website at reclaimphiladelphia.org. Also, make sure you're subscribing to Our Political Moment. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, or our website. We're always looking for your feedback, so feel free to comment on this episode and any others.